When I was a medical student, I wasn't sure if my faith had a place in the way I would practice medicine. I needed to see this done well, to have it modeled for me in order to overcome my hesitation and fears. Through their example and friendship, the members of the Catholic Medical Association have inspired me and showed me that yes, this can be done. Come and see how Novus Medicus, the young members of the Catholic Medical Association, can provide you with a sense of belonging and challenge you to use your gifts as a faithful Catholic in the medical community. Visit our website, novusmedicus.org, to connect with us today and start your journey to live out your faith to the fullest in the calling of medicine. Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now, Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the underwriting support of our good friends at CMF Curo. You can learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. You can live your Catholic faith in your healthcare at CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our guest, returning to the Dr. Doctor microphone, is Sister Dr. Marisha Weber. She's a psychiatrist who works for the Archdiocese of St. Louis, and she's been researching and speaking about internet pornography for over 25 years. She gave a presentation on this topic at the Denver Annual Meeting of the Catholic Medical Association back in September that was incredibly well-received. And so she's going to enlighten us. Plus, we wanted to make sure you know that her new book, Screen Addiction, Why You Can't Put Down That Phone, which was a topic of prior episodes of Dr. Doctor, is a great resource for understanding how screens, not only with pornography, but in all other ways, can affect your brain and practical ideas to address this addiction. So, Chris, why why are we addressing pornography on Dr. Doctor? You know, even before I get to that, I was just thinking, how many of our listeners have never met a nun, how even fewer of them have Never met a nun who's a doctor. Yes. Um, we're, so, we're so lucky to have her on the show with us, and especially talking about this important topic. And in thinking about why our listeners should listen, uh, I think it's easy to maybe relegate this topic of pornography and uh, addiction to pornography as some kind of marginal fringe topic that couldn't possibly affect me and my family or anybody at my parish or anybody I know. And I think, I think sister will help us understand that simply is not true. Um, if you have an electronic device in your home, on your person or in your car, there is the potential for someone to use that device to voluntarily, or maybe even involuntarily be exposed to pornography. It's, it's just that pervasive. I mean, the internet is a giant portal that just begs the enemy, please come into our lives and our house. I mean, how many of us have received unwanted texts, unwanted emails, unwanted pop-up ads that lead right down there? Yeah. And, you know, all it takes is one click. And then the next thing you know, your 10 or 11-year-old is looking at images that they can't process and you can't process having to describe, you know, what they are. Um, I mean, and there's certainly... A lot of feeling out there about how to limit young people's exposure to the internet and to images. But, you know, in your home, you can do your absolute best to try to do this, as I imagine most listeners do. But I think, I know we learned with one of our children, the, the portal, if you will, was other kids' electronics, often mm -hmm. at, say, sports practices or after-school programs. So it's really hard to put that bubble around your child when they're outside of your house. Uh, so... We need to know more about this. Listeners need to pay close attention because either you or your child or your grandchild or someone you know or love is going to encounter this, and we need to be ready to deal with it. Now, Chris, I think you can address this from another professional in your office, but Greg Burke, who was the chairman of the CMA conference in September, said he had kind of polled a number of priests that he knows in an entirely unscientific study. But the average was they said about 40% of confessions involve a confession of pornography use. Yeah, that's remarkable. I think most people would think that that's not possible. Again, that, you know, our, we want to think this is a fringe, rare, you know, not very common phenomenon, but it is. Uh, yes, you're referencing uh, my good friend, Amber Todd, who I've done some other podcasts with, and she's a pastoral counselor. And she shared with me that 
she thinks upwards of 90% of people that she encounters in, in a counseling setting in some way or another, whether it's an individual or it's a couple, pornography is somehow playing a part in the troubles that they're experiencing. Uh, obvious maybe would be the couples therapy where there's a problem, but she pointed out um, how important it is to remember that the women of maybe a, a husband who is addicted to pornography, she's struggling and she's suffering. She's feeling inadequate. She's feeling embarrassed. She wants to protect her reputation of her husband. She certainly doesn't want her children to find out. There's probably no one she can talk to about it. Um, and that creates this sense of um, self-consciousness and isolation. And as Amber pointed out so beautifully, the enemy loves nothing better than isolation. If he can pick us off from the herd and get us thinking that we're alone, then we're like that weak animal in the herd um, that's really sub subjective to the dangers of a predator. Some key numbers that Sister gave us during her presentation, Denver. Uh, number one, the number one search topic on the internet is sex. And right. the second number that was shocking is the average age of first exposure to internet pornography is now 10 years old with children as young as four or five being exposed. Yeah, I think listeners are shocked to hear that. They've probably heard it somewhere else, hopefully. But we're talking fifth graders. Uh, and again, it's not necessarily in your kitchen at your, you know, at your at your kitchen table. This might be at after school programs or at sports practices right. or at the neighbor's house on a phone. Um, it's very common. You and I have have young children. It's you know, cell phones are ubiquitous and they're all smartphones which means there's internet access. Right. Uh, so very young children have access to it through their friends. And the, the final tidbit I wanted to share from uh, what Sister had talked about was that 75% of children say that their parents have not discussed the dangers of internet pornography with them. So maybe this show is going to be an opportunity for that. Yeah, I, I hope so. Maybe Sister will help us with some language that we can use to try to introduce the topic um, I have not read it, but I have been told about a book. I need to ask Sister about it. I think it's called Good Picture, Bad Picture. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's playing on this idea that written in the hearts of children by our creator is a sense of right and wrong, this natural law. And that when they look at a picture, even though they can't describe what they're seeing, something inside them says, this is wrong. This is, this is not something I'm supposed to see. It makes me feel funny. And she would point out, that's the Holy Spirit saying, protect yourself, get away. <laughs> um, and that maybe the secret is in teaching our children, we could all use this skill, teaching our children to hear that voice and act on it and to be even more attuned to that protective nature of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a great segue into the interview. But first, the medical oh. trivia question of the day. And the category is human vision, which what is... Else could what else could it be? <laughs> so what is the shortest time that an image can be displayed to a person that they can understand what the image was. Multiple choice. Is it a thousand milliseconds or one second? B, is it 500 milliseconds or half a second? Is it C, 250 milliseconds or a quarter of a second? D, 100 milliseconds or one-tenth of a second? Or E, 13 milliseconds or one seventy-fifth of a second? As you know, I'm not gonna tell you now, but I will at the end of the show, so stay on here with Dr. Doctor till the end of the show. And after the break, we'll have Sister Marisha Weber with us on internet pornography. Now, I have the pleasure of introducing uh, Dr. Sister Marisha Weber. She's a religious sister of mercy from Alma, Michigan, a physician certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. She has a master's degree also in theology from Notre Dame, a little school in Northwest Indiana. Sister, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much for the invitation. All right. So when I was a kid, the concern of many parents was that their sons long time ago. Yes. Um, <laughs> in a land far, far away. A concern of the parents for their sons was having access to pornography. Now we had the modifier internet before pornography. Yes. What's what's so important about that extra modifier? Well, before internet, you had to go to a store, you had to buy a magazine or a video, then you had to take it home. And the evidence was there. Now, in the matter of a few clicks on a phone, 
nobody knows what you've done. And there is the pornography. It's so readily accessible. And pornographies want it to be so. I'm sure we'll get into it, sister. But, um, you know, laughingly, we said before you came on with us, how many people have probably never met a nun and an even fewer group have ever met a nun who happens to be a physician. But I, I think the fact that you're both of those can't be lost on almost the irony that someone as holy as you are is an expert in something as unholy uh, as pornography. Help us understand how you came to be such an expert in, uh, in screen addiction and, and particularly screen addiction involving pornography. When I finished my fellowship at Mayo Clinic, that was already in, you know, 91, the internet was just coming out. Mm -hmm. And as I began to see patients, adults, children, and then persons of all vocations, I found something beginning to change. Mm -hmm. And some of them becoming more agitated and also then beginning to view pornography and nobody in my field being that bothered about it. And I said, well, it's a free world. You can do what you want. It's a victimless crime, tell. right? It was affecting them in more significant ways. And that was a bother to me. And so I began to do some research and accompany my patients and my families along the way. And it's led me now to about, you know, 30 years of doing this kind of work. So, sister, you know, Tom's a dermatologist. He can look at someone and think, I'll bet they have this condition or that condition. <laughs> Do you feel as a clinician, you can interview children and adults and without them telling you, are you able to sense that, I wonder if pornography is playing a part here? The distractibility mm -hmm. and the, um, you know, the agitation and the urge to really often pick up a phone or to fiddle around it's become so common right now since the phone came out you know this the um, iphone came out in 2007. so now the attention deficit disorder the most common cause is a cell phone because oh of the hyperstimulation of the brain and it was geared that way those people who put it together deliberately designed it that way, which is just such a sad, horrible fact. What is the power that screen images, thinking of internet pornography, have over us compared to real life images of people? Is there a difference? Absolutely. Images, you know, are very engaging, especially if they're moving and it's a video. But like if you're, you know, it's very engaging. But when you're also just, um, you know, looking at words, for example, it takes a little bit of time because each word that you read is almost like a picture that your brain has to take and put in. But a picture, you know, they say a, a picture is worth a thousand words. Now, if you had never seen an elephant and I tried to describe to you what an elephant looked like and describe the tail and tried the trunk right. and the tusks, it would take a long time. And you may have a very interesting image of an elephant. <laughs> However, yeah. if I brought you a picture of an elephant, so much quickly. So right. images are much more efficient in communicating a concept than words are. You know, reading on Kindles or, you know, even the written word, does it work the same way as pictures? When we, when we read on a screen, are we really looking at pictures? We are, but we're not taking in as much of the data, mainly because it's a more passive reception. The words you, you receive a little more passively. And they say when you read something on a Kindle, most people read in the shape of an F. So you kind of go across this way and you kind of go down a little bit. And they're less inclined to get engaged themselves. <laughs> and also with a picture, you know, it's much more fast moving. So you imagine, you know, um, the, the high speed internet right now stimulating the auditory and visual stimuli, but not the frontal lobe. Our frontal lobe is our is above our eyes, and it's the it's our executive function. We're the only creatures that God created that are able to pause, to ponder, to plan, to create. But if we don't use that pathway, it's not developed. And so that's when you get just more the hyper arousal or the stimulation of a lot of visual and a lot of auditory stimulation. Um, which we see so much now in these screens. So, Sister, you've mentioned before that uh, addiction to printed pornography is not nearly as common, if, if it occurs at all, compared to images. I mean, listening to you, it sounds like the magic, poor choice of words, is that digital component. Um, but 
is it possible to become addicted to print for you know pornography? Much some people who are sex addicts, you know, there are certain persons that have that, but more likely persons who would go and buy a, a pornography magazine and then take it home and view it, were less inclined to become addicted to those pictures. Again, it's the static picture. And Marshall McClune is a pioneer who in the 70s really began to look at television. He said, you know, television is going to affect how our brain is aroused. And boy, was he right. He coined the term, medium is the message. So what is key to contributing to an addiction is not the content or the message necessarily, but it's the medium over which it is delivered. High-speed internet just hyper-arouses the mind much more than a static image, and that's why the medium makes internet pornography so much more addictive than pornography in a magazine. In fact, today, Internet pornography is the most addictive addiction we have. Wow. So, yeah, sister, I remember watching a video of Marshall McLuhan during junior high catechism class in my parish. I have no idea why they showed it to us. I just remember <laughs> that they did. And here's this guy with this TV flickering by him. Anyway, yes. so, so we're talking about a problem that really only affects men, right? No, no, no. <laughs> Later statistics now say, because it's so available, the culture is so hypersexualized, and kids are going to view what they see and they want to mimic and imitate that. That's how we're created to kind of mirror what we observe. And unfortunately, it's said that about 92% of men view pornography and about 60, 61% of women. And today, one in three women are addicted to internet pornography. So it's a rising percentage of women. Oh my gosh. And I thought women were less visually stimulated and more emotionally, relationally, you know, brought in. Well, you know, and, and that is true to a certain degree. Um, women like stories are more likely to read romantic stories. But what we're finding is because of how the medium, the rapid images are affecting the brain and hyper arousing and making it, um, you know, of engaging it, a woman's um, reward center is very similar to a man. And so in that regard, there's beginning to be like a narrowed pathway between the difference of how women okay. relate and are aroused as opposed to how men are um, aroused and relating. Sister, we've, we've talked with others on our show about substance abuse and addiction to drugs or alcohol um, and some of the signs that you know a loved one may be experiencing this. But Walk us through how we would know uh, if someone uh, or ourselves were becoming addicted to digital pornography or internet. Okay, okay, good question. There's uh, there's several stages that a person goes through when they're on their way to an addiction to internet pornography in particular, and different models use different names. And basically, they have the same principles. So first, not surprisingly, there's discovery. So somebody might have stumbled onto an internet pornography site, or they might have been out of curiosity wanting to see what's there. And so because it's, it's arousing, it feels good, then the neurotransmitter called endorphin is released. Now, once endorphin is released because it feels good, then the brain also releases another neurotransmitter called dopamine. Now, dopamine is the seeking neurotransmitter. It does, makes you desire and seek it. Now, the, this, is, this is how God created us. You know, he created us like when we are very hungry and we have a nice meal, then that feels good. But as you realize, you became satiated. And so it doesn't last very long. So there is the liking system, which are the endorphins, and the wanting system, which is the desire or the dopamine, and they are intended to be in balance. And I've always, you know, touched by the fact that God made, you know, things to sustain our species as pleasurable food, drink, and procreation in the right um, um, vocation. With internet pornography, though, once you get to discovery, then you might experiment. You want to see the different images to see what that's like. And so you get a little bit more endorphin, a little bit more liking, 
And then more dopamine is released. But at this point in time, dopamine has another protein released with it that strengthens the, the power to desire and seek and want. Now, if you continue to view internet pornography, at that point in time, you begin to become tolerant or, or satiated if it was food. Because again, the reward center is neutral. It doesn't know the difference between a good habit and a bad habit. It's kind of neutral. But tolerance means I need more of a substance. This is where alcohol might come in or drugs come in, for example. I need more of the same substance to have you know, this, the, the same effect. So more alcohol make me more drunk. When it's so internet pornography, not only do I become tolerant, but I become bored to the same images. Oh. And so then I begin to seek more and more, and there's more dopamine that's released, and it's protein to make it stronger. And then what happens is I'm now really, truly moving towards what's called habituation. I'm so habituated, and I'm bored with the images, so I begin to need more novel images. Mm. Novel images that then, you know, get my mind going. And so then sometimes pornographers mix sex and violence. So when you think of violence, what do you think of? What do you think of? Sex. And when you think of sex, to kind of arouse, because there's no more liking at this point. It's more adrenaline that's, that's seeking out. And this is called a hyper-reactive um, process. And it's called sensitization. We're now at an addiction where I'm become sensitized, and that's when cueing comes in. So, be, so um, um, those who are addicted to pornography, then maybe if they were, you know, tapping the keys of a computer, they'll associate that with being aroused mm -hmm. and want to go on internet, or if they were hearing a song. So what's happening here is these neurotransmitters through the neuroscientists have ca classically conditioned us. Do you remember Pavlov's dogs? <laughs> sure. If you rang a bell and set down food, rang a bell and set down food, don't set down food anymore. The dogs begin to salivate to the bell. That's a cue. So now we have all these cues that make them aroused and it begins now to become distorted because they need to more novel images. And then that's when they, you get the desensitization. And then at this point in time, there's the craving and the withdrawal because they're no longer liking so the wanting is really high, and there's an imbalance between the liking. They're no longer in balance, such that now there's a distortion really in the neural circuitry of the brain. And then now persons who are viewing pornography do so not out of pleasure, but to address the withdrawal and the agitation that you know you might see an alcoholic of their drinking not yeah. to get drunk. My goodness. It, well, thank you for that explanation. Wrong. That's remarkable. I think, Sister, this would be a great time uh, to take a break. So listeners, we'll be right back with Sister Marisha on Dr. Doctor after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor and our discussion with Sister Dr. Marissa Weber talking about internet pornography and the addiction there too. So Sister, I think it's tempting uh, for listeners to think, you know, sort of a boys will be boys approach to this problem. Young boys, adolescents showing each other pictures that they ought not do. Um, but it's not the same, is it? So what's the difference of the effect on the brain of an adolescent or a post-adolescent? young boy, young girl, as opposed to an adult? Good question. You know, again, we know now that the brain continues to develop until we're 25 years old. And there's a wonderful, wonderful capacity the brain has called neuroplasticity. Hmm. So for example, you know, when you've had a stroke, you're able to relearn how to walk and talk because the brain is able to develop other neural pathways to make up for what was damaged. But even still, do you remember when you're first learning how to ride a bike? You kind of teeter back and forth and you fall off the bike. Well, it's sending all these messages, you know, in your brain, you know, to, okay, to catch your fall, to catch your fall. But over time, then as you get more efficient on the bike, then what happens to those little neurons, they begin to prune back because the brain becomes more efficient. Mm -hmm. And so what you use more is stronger. And that's how neuroplasticity works towards having you be efficient so that you are doing actions that then you intend to go ahead and proceed with. Mm 
So well, that sister, is it, almost, it almost sounds like you're saying viewing digital pornography structurally changes the brain. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. This is the problem. They have done studies on um, men who are maybe in 30, 40 years old and young teenagers who have, who have admitted that they have been addicted to internet pornography, done all the studies, and then found how long it took them to be free of the addiction. And it took over twice as long for a teenager to become free of the addiction than an adult male. And that's because the adult male was born before internet was available. So they had a normal um, reward center developed. Whereas a child, if this deforms the reward center right from the beginning, and you don't have good connection with the prefrontal cortex, which is all about self-regulation, it's about helps with self-discipline, then they have a greater problem. Have you ever um, mislearned a song? and then had to go back and try to relearn it correctly, it's much harder. So that's what these kids are doing. They have a deformed reward center that they're trying to reform in a healthy way, which is much more work than if they had had a healthy reward center that had been damaged by internet pornography later on. Well, so it much- sounds, sister, I mean, there's no question this is, this is horrible. You're damaging an adolescent's brain uh, like not wearing a seatbelt in your car would damage your brain if it hits the windshield. Why do you think we haven't come out in a, in a legal way, in a law enforcement protective way to try to protect our young people from this really disease? It, it's so, it's so painful. I think our culture is turning a blind eye to this. And I think in part because so many are actually using and uh, probably addicted themselves. Right. You know, the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, number five, it's kind of like the, 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 quote, Bible of mental health professionals. It's the latest one that came out. They did not include internet pornography as an addiction. Wow. Now, ICD-11, which is the World Health Organization, has one for compulsive sexual um, addiction. And also the American Academy of Addiction in 2011 is encouraging them to do so. But there's, you know, it's all this politicizing that's going on to, I think, the detriment of what really needs to be faced, that this is an issue to look at. Well, let's look at some hopefully practical ways that we can address this. I want to start, I know a story of a man who went to a a men's conference, a Catholic men's conference, and all the men there were encouraged to talk to their children, especially their sons, and preemptively instruct them about staying away from internet pornography. Well, apparently within a short period of time after this conversation, a son, after hearing that, started getting into it and later explained to his dad that, well, I didn't know anything about it until you mentioned this to me. And now they're having a horrible time as parents trying to get this son off of off of this. I mean, the, the son is trying these incredibly sly ways to access media wherever he can, and they keep finding it, but they- This is that awful, that terrible parental dilemma of if I bring it up, am I causing a problem that didn't exist before I brought it up? Yes, yes. And that's a very difficult question for parents to Mm -hmm. kind of maneuver through. It's a difficult topic to maneuver through. And what I would recommend, because again, when you think that the statistics are 10% of persons who are accessing internet pornography are under 10. Wow. So it is affecting a very young demographic. But I, I encourage parents, again, it's got to be age appropriate, got to meet them where they are, but to kind of bring up um, just a little bit about digital devices. So like, you know, when they're using their cell phone, if the child doesn't have a cell phone or a cell phone, in this, in this case, it's the teenager and what they're viewing and what they like and maybe have a, a, a kind of a, a go on a walk that's kind of private or when you're just together. And then just simply ask, you know, um, have you, you know, what, how old were you when you first accessed internet pornography? Or you know, when did you first find out about it? And then let them know that being curious is normal. Mm-hmm. You know, we're created to be curious, but there are some things that the curiosity brings us to not necessarily good places. And I think what education is key. 
So I think don't make them feel guilty of what they looked at. Don't make it a taboo, but make it something that you want to talk to them about as a safety, as a safety plan, about communication and relationship. And so what I have them say is, you know, when you, when you talk about love or caring for another, then it's because you want their good. But internet pornography is not about love. It's about using a person for my sexual gratification. And that's a huge distinction that we need to make. And also, I think, to tell them that you know, many of the people who are doing this pornography are paid actors. But this is not what intimacy is about. And you know, also listen, ask them what, if they view pornography, you know, what, what stood inside of them? What did they feel? What did it make it think of? You know, were they comfortable, uncomfortable with it? You know, what happened after that? And then just let them talk. Take some time. And, and, and just don't do it just once. Make this something that's safe and normal to be able to talk about so you can share with your children some of the things that they're thinking, feeling, and being exposed to. Sister, those are great points to talk about. But what if you have a child who's feeling so embarrassed they don't even want to talk about it? I think to also acknowledge to say, you, I think a little self-revelation to say, you know, internet pornography is so available that I accidentally found it, you know, and I was kind of surprised. I didn't know what I was finding. But as an adult, I know that this isn't really love. This isn't, you know, regarding the other person and their dignity. And um, so, you know, I've also know that it's, it's so available that they tell me very young kids have accessed. And so I wouldn't be surprised if you did. And you're not bad. You know, mm. I love you. And we can talk about this because you and I are in a relationship, you know, where there's love and openness, and we can kind of work on this together. That's beautiful, sister. So in working with kids, with teenagers, what, what sort of resources, what sort of methods, what sort of groups have proven to be the most effective for parents and their teens to use to get out of this scourge-like addiction? I think number one, um, the earlier you develop some kind of family plan as to when and how screens are used is key. If you didn't do it before, then begin to do so, but maybe engage them. You know, what do you think of when we should not have the internet on? And what do you think of maybe not having, you know, the cell phone in the bedroom because, you know, it's going to wake you up and you might, you know, get involved in things you don't want to get involved in. And then how do you then use screens more with your own children? You know, are there healthy games or apps and, and, and engage with them as well? Um, and, and then I think it's very important to put on some, you know, safety measures um, on the internet, as well as, um, you know, some of these monitoring systems. Um, Covenant Eyes has one, and there's, a, you know, Safe Eyes that has one. There's many of them that help you kind of set up um, times that they can get on the internet and times that are not on the internet. I've even encouraged some patients and some parents who have trouble to disconnect the internet, maybe disconnect the ethernet, disconnect their router at a certain point in time so that they know in a public place their child is viewing, and then maybe not get them a cell phone that has um, internet capacity, that sure. doesn't have any social media capacity. There's several out there. There's yeah, They know, actually exist. That's true. Yes, Gab Phone Z2, I guess, is one that many parents like because it has some apps where they can interact with kids, but there's parental controls, no internet no social media. And those things can kind of be helpful. Okay, sister, these are all external things to the teenager, which can help access. But how do you turn the internal wanting back down? So how do you change, you know, a habit? Right. I think that's very, very key. So um, there's, there's a triangular um, sequence to a habit. There's a cue or a trigger, and then there's a routine and then there's what's called the reward or the outcome. There's usually a trigger that then has you go through a routine. So um, um, Alcoholics Anonymous does this really, really well. So if I have, um, you know, difficulty at work or with my spouse, then I grab a bottle and then the outcome, the reward is I'm drunk. Well, I don't really like that. 
So the, the root of a lot of these feelings and thoughts are blasted. Bored, lonely, oh. angry, anxious, apathetic, stressed, or tired. And so instead of getting the bottle, I go to an AA meeting. And then I see other people working on these things. And I learn that I'm not the only one. And I get a sponsor. And so my reward is I didn't get drunk this time. Maybe my situation with my wife or my husband or my work is no better, but I'm in a better place to be able to address some of these stressors. So you change the routine. So if a, if a child or a teen is, um, you know, they, they, you have to outline the routine. Like, what is it? Is it they're at night? Is it they're alone and, and they're um, on their phone? Are they at, at school? So talk to them about what it is and how can you introduce a different routine so they'll end up with a different outcome. So you have to have a plan for what you're gonna do in that moment when the trigger happens, you know what you're gonna do. You don't figure it out in the moment. You figure it no, out No, and you plan ahead. You have to plan ahead. Key is planning ahead. And yeah. that's where willpower comes in because we learn now that willpower, you know, it's not a skill. It's actually like a muscle that you exercise. And the more you exercise a muscle in one area, it can steal you know, willpower away from other areas. So if you're looking at a lot of porn, then it's going to steal away from your being able to move away from it. So what you need to do is plan ahead, develop a routine that gets you where you want to go so that you then, you know, are, are, are able to do different things. And this can be very, very helpful for individuals um, to change their, their habits um, and, and engage their willpower, which engages a prefrontal lobe, planning, you know, um, and, and the persons have found if you plan ahead, then you're gonna more do that when you have a trigger of anxiety. So, you know, there are healthier ways to deal with anxiety or stress or loneliness or wanting to feel good, which really doesn't last long because it's not happiness. You quoted one of the St. Thomases. I can't remember, it was Thomas yes. More? Okay. Yeah, St. Thomas More. About the importance of filling the time with what? <laughs> That's right. He said, you know, fill your thoughts with good things. Otherwise, you know, they'll be preoccupied with bad things. You know, <laughs> so, and this is where individuals who are addicted to Internet pornography, I talk to them about purifying their memory and purifying their imagination. So what I have them do is a, called a sensory exercise. Right. So it's five things that you see five things that you hear, five things that you uh, feel, and if there's a smell. Because we cannot imagine intently two things at once. So if you have a sexual image bubbling up, five things that you see, you know, like the, the, the clock here in my room, or the crucifix on the wall, five things that I hear, the echo in my voice, or what I feel, the glasses on my nose, and if there's a smell, and I have them practice just simple day in and day out exercises, like brushing their teeth or going for a walk. And that really helps them calm down some of the arousal and the sexual desire that they have because they're just focusing on the here and now, the duty of the moment, the grace of the moment that allows them then to begin to become more able to use that self-regulation capacity of the frontal lobe because they've chosen where they look, they see, they feel. And it's a very simple exercise, but it's a very effective exercise. So after this exercise, sister, what are some other activities besides spending all that time looking at screen images of pornography? What are some other activities you recommend they do to reconnect them with reality? Um, Real life interactions with friends, with family, going camping, going hiking, um, learning a song, a board game, doing some gardening, engaging in service projects, all those things that we used to do before screens were yeah. even available to Be us. Be careful there, sister. You're sounding a little heretical that uh, the idea <laughs> that it's good for humans to interact with one another. <laughs> That's the key thing is, you know, we're created to know and be known and love and be loved. And we just long for relationship. And I think that so much of this is looking, you know, for love in the wrong places. And we've substituted pleasure for happiness. And they're not the same thing. 
Uh, well said. So how do the sacraments fit into healing from a pornography addiction, sister? They are key. I can tell you the privilege I've had of working with many Catholics of all vocations. There is something so powerful with the divine physician offering that healing balm of the sacrament of reconciliation that bolsters their will, their hope, that cleanses their soul of guilt and clears, you know, the cloud that they had. And also then also, you know, Holy Eucharist and also reading sacred scripture. So again, those fill their minds with just the holy things, the divine things that really, that's why we were created, you know, for an adventure with God. Say and they want to go to adoration, sister. What, what would you recommend they read or do if their minds keep racing back to previous images they've seen of pornography? I would have them engage in that sensory exercise where they would maybe look at the Blessed Sacrament. Okay. And then also after those five senses, I also have them um, pray the rosary hold on to the beads with both hands and then begin to pray for an intention of someone. I also then have them maybe get down on the pew and imagine Our Lady with them begging Our Lord for the, the gift of purity and saying three Hail Marys, like they really, really mean it because you know, Our Lady loves them and wants that imagine, even maybe Our Lady putting her hand on their shoulder. And then if they don't have a crucifix, but if they have the rosary, holding under the crucifix with both hands and imagining how much our Lord loves them. He loves them so much. He is, he became incarnate because he loves them so much and allow them to give their worries, their struggles, their images, all that they're, you know, hoping to come to into his sacred heart and bathe with his precious blood because that's going to be the healing balm. And these, this is why God gave us an imagination to really come to him, to prayer, to participate in the divine, in the supernatural, because we are both, you know, matter and spirit called with an immortal soul to be forever with him in the fullness of joy. Well, sister, that's so beautiful, and I know our listeners are, agree with that completely. How about your counterparts and what you might call your your secular counterparts or your civilian physician psychiatry <laughs> counselors? Um, what what is a, a a family that's struggling with this that seeks professional help that doesn't have access to you or someone as marvelous as you? What are they likely to encounter? Painfully they're often told that it's not a problem oh my. and that um, it's fine. Oh it doesn't hurt anybody else. Oh and yet, you know, it breaks relationship. They um, have jaw problems, trouble studying, and it literally causes agitation, anxiety. They can have more depression. Um, and it also affects their, their sense of self-esteem and their, their body self-image. So it's, it's so untrue. Or so they can give them medication for the anxiety and depression. Now, that helps a little bit, but that's kind of like a Band-Aid on mm -hmm. the problem. So, you know, I, I'll have to say there are some secular facilities, though, that are for teenagers, especially where they have almost like a camp setting and no screens at all, no nothing. And they learn how to cook and clean and do laundry and play outdoor games, and they're out in nature. And so that's one thing that helps kind of learn interpersonal um, you know, skills because they've, they've lost those, and also to purify the memory and agitation and kind of go through the withdrawal that they would have had because of the addiction and the um, hyperarousal they would have experienced in the brain. So where can parents find a network of other parents or people to help them that they can tap into, sister? That is a good question and something that really needs to be made more available. Um, right now, you know, there are s several websites that help individuals learn how to deal with this. Um, there's a website called bt.com and there's um, um, healthykids.com, there's Covenant Eyes, but I'm thinking more and more what we need to do is to do this in our, in our parishes, to have opportunities where we gather together to talk about these and make these um, 
these skills and the, and the opportunities of how to purify the memory and imagination and do social things that are interpersonally interactive more available. Because there's not a lot that's available Is, is right there a now. resource called Fight the New Drug? Fight the New Drug is an excellent, excellent app. And I recommend Fight the New Drug for everyone because it it gives a lot of information that's very useful for teenagers and adults. There's videos, there's podcasts, there's medical information that can be very helpful. That's one. Also, Reclaim Sexual Health is oh, very yes. good for adults. And it's um, a Catholic um, website. They have information for spouses who, whose spouse use, for the one who's addicted, for teenagers, also for counselors and for pastors in the confessional, how to work with this. So they have a lot of material as well. Strive is another one. Integrity Restored is another one. So, sister, how important is it to have an accountability partner if you're trying to get out of pornography addiction? You know, I, pornography is such a secretive private thing, or you're doing it with someone else who also is using, which is not helpful. But an accountability partner is not someone who's supposed to shake his finger at you and say, bad, bad, bad. They're there to walk with you, to accompany you. And if you fall, what was going on? You know, what were the stressors or what were the cues? What was the blasted part that was going on? What routine did you engage in that wasn't really helpful? Let's kind of unpack it. What's a different routine that you can engage in that might be able to take you more where you want to go so that, you know, this will turn out a little bit better? You know, let me know how it goes. We can do this together. So the accountability partner really makes somebody feel not so alone helps reduce some of the shame and guilt and can be very hopeful and encouraging because that's what people really need. What, what we also know is that people who do better in trying to get beyond this, they need to be motivated motivated. And if they don't have a reason to be motivated, they've got to find a reason to be motivated, either because they're anxious or they're agitated or they're depressed or they've got a problem with work or relationship. And then hope hope that this can be addressed because hope helps motivation. And we only hope in one another, hope in God, in the sacraments, in another that's going to walk with us, and then keep striving. And if we fall, just make it a blip in the radar, not an avalanche that does me in. Just get up and do it again. You know, it's okay. We have all the sacraments and all the opportunities to keep doing this again. Yeah. Well, sister, we've learned a lot tonight. And one of the most important things I think we've learned is we could talk about this forever. Uh, we've just scratched the surface and we hope that we'll on the air, you'll promise to come back and talk more about this. But thank you for uh, enlightening us and teaching us about this important, really, really epidemic that's affecting uh, our teens, our lives in so many ways. But thank you for your time and thank you for your work. And we hope that you'll come back to Dr. Dr. Thank you for your invitation and the work that you do. It's been a privilege. Well, welcome back to Dr. Doctor and welcome to the answer to this episode's trivia question. Tom, share your vision with us, uh, with this, <laughs> this question. So how long does it take? What's the shortest time we know it takes to recognize an image as what it shows? Is it a second, half a second, quarter of a second, 10th of a second, or 175th? Well, shockingly, it is 175th of a second or less. That was the shortest period of time in this MIT study uh, that was done uh, in 2014 that demonstrated that. And, and which goes to show, oftentimes when doing skin exams on patients, they think I haven't looked at them long enough. It's amazing <laughs> how much you can see and know, nope, there's no cancer there. Or, yep, there is. They're, they're just astounding. You don't have to stare at it longer. But it's it's true. But it also fits with this topic that Sister was bringing up of, oh. about the brain processing images. It's almost as though we're too, we're too good at it. Uh, yes. And that creates, that creates a problem, especially in the digital format, because we can take in so much so fast um, by our design. But yet at the same time in the digital world, that's a bad thing. Used against us. So what are your top three takeaways for this episode, Chris? Well, you know, as is the case, every time we have a great guest, the hardest thing is picking the top three, right? Uh, and she has to be on the list of our top three guests. <laughs> I really liked um, when she talked about uh, she talked about love and love wants the better for another. Don't confuse love with what's happening in pornography. There's nothing there that's about love. Mm -hmm. That's about the objectification of another person. It, 
It's not Amazing. about love. Um, the second, I, I love the way she talked about um, pleasure is not happiness. Uh, and they're not the same thing. Right. And it's not, it's not pleasure that we actually seek. It's actually relationship uh, that we seek, that we're designed for relationships. So don't be fooled into thinking it's pleasure uh, that that dopamine is driving us for. Uh, it's really relationship. Uh, and then finally, uh, as a parent like you, I, I liked the way she was helping us talk to children. It's normal to be curious. It's normal to want to know what's behind the door, what's under the rock. We're, that's by our design. Um, <laughs> but also we have to teach them when you discover something that you shouldn't, how do we process that? How do we deal with that? And this idea that we need to practice talking about it. How often have we jokingly said, well, it's time to have the talk with my son. As she, as she pointed out, there is no singular talk. There's right. many, many talks at different stages of their development. Chris, that's a wonderful summary. The, the thing that struck me the most was get in touch with reality, a, a, a real book, real people talking in front of you, not through cyberspace, doing things with your hand, garden, making things, drawing, <laughs> playing an instrument, singing. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. That's why I said, you know, she's bordering on heretical. This idea that the best thing for us is us. <laughs> we need, we need to, we're created to interact with each other we can be in a in a in a bad mood and want to go to our introvert closet but yet by design we need one another we don't need digital digital representations of one another and listeners thank you for choosing to interact with us today here on dr doctor you can find this and all our old episodes on our website drdoctor.org just click episode archive at the top and you can search over 290 episodes by guest or topic and if you still feel so motivated you can view our podcast now there's a video version you can just click on the youtube link near the top of the homepage at drdoctor.org and while you're there, if you have a question about something we've said or you have an idea about a, an episode you'd like us to cover, click on Submit a Question. We would love to hear from you. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.